0: Welcome to LambdaCast, the podcast about learning functional programming from the perspective of a working developer. I'd like to introduce our cast for this episode. First off, Aaron Johnson. Hello, everyone. He's a newcomer to functional programming who works mainly in .NET. Next, Kat Chuang. Hello. Kat is a designer learning functional programming with Haskell. And Logan Barnett. Hello. He's a functional JavaScript programmer working on the front end. And I'm your host, David Kuntz. I'm a static functional programming enthusiast, working mostly on the front end. We love hearing from you, so please keep it up. You can send email to contact at lambdacast.com, or you can follow us on Twitter at LambdaCast. We're also part of the FP Chat Slack community, and we have a LambdaCast channel there. Uh, We have a link to that FP Chat Slack community in the show notes so that you can find uh, out how to get invited to that. We're also on Patreon, so if you think we're doing a good job, and you want to support this show, you can go over to patreon.com slash lambdacast. And we have some patrons to thank this episode. Um, just as a side note, we have gotten a lot of new patrons, which we love. We're not going to be able to get to all of them this episode, but we are thanking many of you so that we can kind of get caught up on our, our backlog a little bit. So for this episode, our patrons are Nathan Scully, Lee Beck, David Joyner, Neho Charles Weinbrenner, and Stephen Paul Leva. All right, so this episode, we are talking mainly with, uh, Logan is going to be sort of our, our leader here, and he is going to talk to us about his experience applying functional-style JavaScript in the real world on a production system. So, Logan, do you want to take us through a little bit of the overview of, of what's going on here?
1: Yeah, uh, just to kind of give some background on, like, what it is? This is. Um, I work for a company called NWEA. It's a nonprofit organization. Uh, they mostly do adaptive testing for uh, like students, quizzes, that kind of stuff.
2: What is adaptive testing?
1: Yeah, adaptive testing is basically like if you're doing very well on a topic, the um, the assessment engine that we have will stop asking you questions for that topic because it believes you've nailed it. Um, if you start getting questions wrong or in some places, it'll, it'll wonder, okay, is that, is that because there's a gap in your knowledge or, you know, are you just, have you just gotten lucky so far? And so it'll probe you and throw different, uh, difficulties at you and that kind of thing. Uh, we've got a gigantic push that we've been doing to, uh, jump in on some, some kind of, a state solution that we're working on. And it involves a lot of rewrites on the stuff that we've had in the past. Uh, My group that I'm on, which I've recently moved to, is working on the user interface for the person who runs the test. Uh, We call that the proctor. Uh, And so we've gotten a chance to start on a JavaScript UI project from the ground up. And... Uh, They moved me into the project to to start on that, and so we've had some very interesting tech choices that we've made uh, that I think have really helped us. And all of those put our functional uh, stuff that we've been talking about to to use. So far, it's been really great. Um, Just to kind of give a quick rundown of the tech stack, we're using uh, React. We use Redux. Uh, It's built with Webpack. Uh, Flow is a big one, and uh, we also use Ramda.
0: Yeah, And can you, for the people who aren't familiar with what those technologies do, could you take us through each one of those and kind of what role they fit in in this application?
1: Yeah, so React is probably the one everybody's heard of. Uh, That's that's basically a view library for JavaScript. It allows you to express kind of like a, a declarative HTML within your JavaScript itself. And, you know, under the hood, it gets transpiled into some string concatenation and stuff. And it does a... It builds something called a virtual DOM. The idea is the DOM or the, you know the, the, the tag structure that exists within the browser is a very expensive thing to perform write operations on. So it will go and do a delta runtime against the last thing that it rendered, and then try and figure out what transformation is most efficient to get from here to there. Uh, the benefit is unlike something like you know, people do things with jQuery. jQuery is like you just go and grab an element and you modify it directly. Uh, this is more just given the data that I have. Here's what the HTML should look like.
0: So how how is that a um, like a functional or functionally friendly uh, choice for that part of an application stack?
1: As I've seen React used in the wild, it typically isn't actually very functional, but um, I think a year or two ago, they came out with something called stateless components. And normally, in you know the old, the old React world, old being a very relative term here, uh, React would uh, you'd have to provide a class, and you know the most important function of this class, the most important method, is render, where you do the actual here's my HTML given all my state and everything. Uh, but there was a lot of other, like, uh, things that you'd hook onto it in ways that you could say, Oh, I clicked on this button. Now my component needs to, you know, take on this new state and then re-render and all those things. Uh, stateless components step away from that and just say, just give me a function. And the function takes data and then it emits a, you know, a piece of React's DOM structure stuff.
3: Was React your first choice? Uh, did you guys have an idea of, what you were going to look at, or was that just the only one you've your team looked at?
1: Our shop uses React, they use Angular, and one project uses their own homegrown view system. Uh, I came from the project that used their own homegrown view system and Angular. Uh, React is still somewhat new to the shop, but um, it was especially new for my team because they're all coming from Java, and they had little, if any, JavaScript experience when jumping in.
3: So was like the, I guess, the advantages of using React, was that known prior to starting this project?
1: I've used React for some personal projects, so uh, and I, I've used it once before at a prior lifetime that I had in another company, uh, and had a lot of success with it.
2: Cool.
1: It, well, it was just me, so everybody else was just kind of buying into my
0: my confidence in it, I guess. So React fits in nicely here because you have just this function that translates some amount of state into some sort of like, um, what should be on the screen. And then React takes care of the messy, like making it happen part. Right. So you have have pure functions, right? Your renders are pure functions.
1: Yeah. In this case, they're pure functions. And, uh, that, that kind of leads to another component that we use that's very big is uh, Redux, which does all of the state management. That one's perhaps lesser known, um, I think equivalents to it are flux and reflux and even nuclear. Uh, Redux takes a lot of inspiration from Elm, uh, which we've talked about here and there. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, it's the basic idea of like you have some kind of action that comes in and, and you have your original state and you have to emit a new state based on that action. And that also is a pure function. And it also is a pure function. It has a hard assumption on immutability. Um, which, is co- which has which it's been a big help for us, but it also means that like because nobody else in the organization has been using these methodologies, we haven't been able to like borrow components for them or anything because uh, they do not have that assumption in place, and I don't know how that's going to react with our stuff.
0: Okay, it's like you're mixing pure stuff with impure stuff; taints all the pure stuff.
1: Right, right, and I don't know how Redux would handle that. So it's like, eh, I don't know where it's making assumptions and optimizations. So. We'll, just, we'll, we'll take care of that ourselves. Don't worry.
3: So at that point, I'm curious, like, were you nervous um, whether or not it would work out? How did you feel about the use of functional programming concepts?
1: I might have a little bit of misplaced confidence in myself, but uh, <laughs> um, I, there was a little bit of nervousness. But it, I was definitely, you know, been putting this to the test on personal stuff. Uh, you know, we've been talking about it extensively here. And... Uh, I don't know. I felt really good going in on it.
2: Um, I had a question. So with React and Redux, it sounds like they're they're both manipulating kind of the same thing, right? They're both working with the DOM. Are they kind of designed to work well together, or do they do separate things?
1: Redux doesn't touch the DOM at all. Redux is just state management. Ah, okay. Yeah. There's, um, there's a library called React Redux that kind of serves as a thing to marry the two of them. And you provide a special kind of React component that knows how to manipulate the Redux state into something all of your React components can then consume. Mm. And then also propagate up events that happen from React into the action creators that Redux needs in order
2: to jump into its reducers where it takes the action in the state and produces a new state. But React then is sort of using Redux, right? Like React, the way you're doing it, React needs the state and Redux provides that state and is managing it. Yeah,
1: and I would say Redux is probably the one running the show more than anything in this case. Okay.
0: Yeah. And React's job is just to take that state and translate into what the DOM should look like as a pure function. Right. All right, what's the next tool we mentioned?
1: We also use Ramda. We've talked about Ramda here quite a bit. It's a utility library. uh, Equivalents to it are like Link in C-sharp streams in Java. Although not like file streams, like their new anonymous function stuff that they have, uh, A lodash in JavaScript and underscore, uh, Ramda also uses a, has a a rule that all of its transformations that it performs and everything are immutable. Um, it's heavily inspired by Haskell. All of the types that they have in in the documentation are expressed as Haskell types, which is kind of cool.
0: Does Ramda enforce types?
1: It doesn't. It has no concept of types itself.
0: So it's just the notation?
1: It's just the notation, yeah. And then, you know, uh, we use Webpack that bundles it all up. It has lots of different plugins that we throw into it that make life nice. Uh, the, the biggest one for me, though, is Flow in the whole thing. Flow is a static type system that you can layer on top of JavaScript, it's a, a competitor to that would probably be TypeScript. Um, big differences are uh, TypeScript is kind of its own language that looks a lot like JavaScript and can use JavaScript. Uh, flow is simply annotations on top of existing JavaScript. In fact, the only transformation that we perform when we transpile it is we just remove the flow annotations. We're left with pure JavaScript at the end. Cool. Uh, flow is just responsible for making sure that we held all of our promises and we were, we were honest engineers.
2: That actually sounds kind of handy.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
3: And,
1: and it's, it's, I think it's written primarily in OCaml. It's a, it's a Facebook mm-hmm. creature, just like React is. Uh, it provides, uh, it, it's not just like C Sharp or Java's uh, type system. It doesn't allow null by default. You have to opt into that. You have to unwrap null if you want to use the value that's in your type. You also, it also supports uh, some types, which is very, very powerful, especially in a dynamic language like JavaScript.
3: I was curious, what's a some type? Could you recap that for us?
1: So some types, um, a lot of, so additive types or are they additive? Multiplicative types are usually what we use when we put together like a class or a struct where it's like I have an int and a bool. And Those can, are product types. Product types, thank you. Yeah. And uh, some types are basically an either-or kind of a thing. So I can have a bool or a number here. And uh, you know normally you have to do something called pattern matching to figure out which one it is that you have before you start operating on it.
0: So an example of this might be you might have a... Uh, an account that can be in three different type, like, statuses. Instead of having, like, a status field inside the record, you could have three different records, each with their own shapes, because a unverified account and a verified account and an admin account might all have different data associated with them. And in something like Haskell, there would be a pattern match that you can do to kind of separate those out. In Flow, you're sort of checking a certain field to see what its value is?
1: Yeah, they've got a sentinel property. Uh, One of the interesting things about types and flow is that a type can be a literal value. So you'll make a bunch of types that you intend to throw into this some type disjointed union thing, and uh, you'll give them all one property that they have in common. And that's how you disambiguate which one that you are looking at, is it knows that, okay, the only way that I ever got to this data type is if I have this exact string in this field. And so it can make the assumption that the rest of the structure came along for the ride.
3: So how does that compare with JavaScript's, um, I guess, natural functionality? Is it, is uh, Flow adding to JavaScript things that JavaScript doesn't have?
1: It only does uh, type checking. So there's no runtime uh, oh. impact by Flow at all. Other than the checks that you were forced to put in place before you know, it made its final
0: build. So flow can force you to put a runtime check around a value that's coming in that could possibly be null. Yes. And flow doesn't... But that's just regular JavaScript that you've added. Right, right. And flow forced you to put it there in order to
2: pass the type checker. Correct. Yeah, you said it it works through annotations, right? And so you'll have... You'll maybe in front of the variable declaration, you have to say, this is going to be an integer, this is going to be a string, or whatever the types are, right? you kind of like at the point that you're instantiating the variable. Is that when you're usually making the annotation?
1: Uh, a lot of times it comes in on function parameters and for local variables, okay. typically we don't use uh, annotations unless we're putting in like literal data, which sometimes mm. comes up. Uh, literal data will sometimes say, no, no, I really want it to be of this type. And to make sure that like, oh, if we accidentally add a field to it or whatever, uh, it fails the type check. Uh, and part of that's because uh, flow doesn't look at types based on their hierarchy. It looks at types based on their shape. Um, so if I have two classes and they're like class A and class B, and they both have a property foo on them, for
0: under Flow's eyes, those are exactly the same thing.
1: Mm. If they have no other
0: differences. Yeah, that's sometimes called structural typing versus nom- nominal typing, where nominal is like name-based typing. Yeah, I mean, and structural yeah. typing is like the shape of it. Um, one thing that we should point out is that Flow has fairly good type inference, which is something that's lacking in like a Java and C Sharp family type. System, yes. In that, uh, Flow will often be able to tell you with certainty what the type is, even though you've not given it given it an annotation, because it can figure out based on like the types that were passed in, the functions those were used with, the return value, the return type of that function. It knows what something down the line is. It knows what that type is. Yeah. So you don't have to put annotations on everything.
1: Hmm. I'd say the weirdest thing about Flow's annotations are like uh, the type refinements that happen, which are a really weird thing. So. Uh... Yeah, a very a very common pattern is like we were talking about with those sum types. You have um, you have some union that's coming in, and you need to disambiguate which one it is. So you have you do your equivalent of a pattern match in JavaScript, but it isn't actually pattern matching authors in Haskell. So it winds up being a big switch statement. You wind up writing a lot more switch statements when using Flow. It's not as nasty as you would think, um, but in the in the body of the switch statement of, of each case, the type of the object that you've been looking at changes. And you don't, it, there's nothing in the syntax that tells you this, which can be kind of weird. Uh, it, Flow provides tooling, so like let you query it and your IDE can tell you and, and all that, but you can't just glaze over the code without kind of like having to parse a little bit of that and understand like, okay, this has become a, a foo now or a bar now.
3: So speaking of that, um, I, I was curious, so I guess going back to like how you selected these things, it sounds like Flow helps you while developing to actually have high quality code and then some of the other packages are just things that you need to make the user interface work so yeah. um i was i was wondering if you can go a little bit into how each of these work together
1: okay uh so um in the case of like redux uh we have our that redux calls these things reducers because they follow the reducer uh or the reduce uh function pattern uh, basically, you get your state, you get an action, and you emit a new state. Um, and <clears throat> in that inside of that reducer, uh, we look at the actions type that it has. Uh, all of our actions have a type property. And we we then go through it and look at each different case that we want to handle on this reducer. And when that happens, Flow is able to refine the type of the action into the specific type that we want it to be so that we can pull properties off of it, and then we can assign them to the you know the new state that we want to construct.
0: If I could jump in here, so an action here is like an event in in uh, Elm, right, or a message in Elm. So yes. It's like a thing happened, and here's some data about the thing. So right. a mouse was clicked, or a button was clicked, or like a new thing was added, or a thing was deleted. Each of those may come with different data, so they yeah. might have a different shape to them, and the switch helps you tell, okay, if it was a item was added it's going to have the item like the text of the item that was added and like you know only right but if it was item was deleted it'll probably have like the ID of the item that was deleted so that the object that comes in to Redux is different the shape of it is different depending on the kind of action and flow at the point of the switch says aha I know exactly what the shape of this action object is that you've received and I can tell you if the fields you're grabbing off it actually exist or not Right. Oh. Did I get that right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: And you might wonder, like, how can I just look at one field and then know what the rest of the structure is? It, it, it means that everywhere else in your application, when you build one of these structures, it has to have the structure that you said it's going to have. So it doesn't let you enter that state. You can't, you can't express this thing is of this type unless you satisfied its entire interface.
0: It, meaning it has all those fields. They've got the right kind of uh, type data in them. Correct. And it has a special field with a certain value. Yes. Like like action type is the string item added or something like that. Yes. Like the special string. Yeah.
3: Would this um, message or action structure um, is that a functional concept or is that something just general web knowledge? Like you mentioned, how like Elm has this framework of using messaging, which is similar to uh, React's action. Concept and I was curious if functional programming has a, a unique way of looking at um, web behavior or like developing for the web.
1: Treating things that they're like they're immutable is a huge game changer. Um, the project that I came from uses a, a custom homegrown view library, and it's all done through classes, and there's lots of inheritance going on, and. Um, it's very important that data gets set at a very specific time and you kind of have to like understand how the flow of these classes work, how they move from one method to the next. And, you know, each of them are getting in and kind of like altering a little piece of the pie and they get, but they get shared by other things. So it's like, okay, I'm going to go in there and mangle it. And then you're going to go in there and like unmangle it. And um, that just hasn't been much of a problem for us here.
3: With The ability to go a little more granular, do you think that was based on the specific tech stack you used, or is it something that if any other functional programming language was selected, you could also achieve that granularity?
1: Uh, Yeah, I think if we were functional in any other state, we'd still be doing what we're doing
0: right now, for sure. I will say that um, Elm's approach and and Redux, which is very similar to Elm, uh, is a very natural-like sort of pattern that you can come up if you're trying to adhere to functional principles but it's certainly not the only formulation there are other formulations that would work this has just been one that's been very popular and that's widely adopted
1: yeah i think they call it functional reactive programming is that um i think i've heard that before with redux Anyways. so
0: functional reactive programming is like with streams and that's actually closer to what like Cycle.js does these days um okay. elm has kind of moved away from that and redux is um, doesn't use like a native stream concept although you could use observables with redux some people do that so okay. the function reactive thing is a little separate from this idea of um, we always do state transitions through an event that comes in like like this event or action or message whatever you want to call it comes in and that triggers a transition from old state to new state yeah. and we only modify the state in reaction to these events that's kind of the big idea of elm um, and, and Redux as well. That's certainly a fine way to structure things. That's uh, very functional, right? <laughs> but it's not the yeah. only way because there is functional reactive programming. There are things that are more like stream-based uh, that are certainly also valid. That's not this, uh, but it, but that's also valid. Does that make
1: yeah. sense? I don't have a basis of a comparison for those, unfortunately.
3: It sounds like functional programming, functional way of thinking um, for websites or apps that have a lot of user interaction with the system a lot of like clicking around single page apps for instance or even like a social uh, networking site or even i guess test taking you want that real time a lot of interaction back and forth um and data flowing around and you want to somehow have a way to organize that and having um the functional concepts to help you um Keep track of all that. It sounds like a great thing to have.
1: Definitely. Definitely. Um, Okay, so I guess a few more things about Flow, and we can stop uh, evangelizing it a little bit. (laughs) So Flow has a third-party library called um, uh, It's not a third-party library. They have a library called FlowTyped, which provides third-party type definitions. So uh, Ramda itself was not built with Flow in mind, but uh, some people have put together a bunch of types for Lambda. Uh, our team has contributed to a few of those actually at this point. And uh, basically it means that we can, it has a way of saying when you, when you pull and import this library over here, it comes with uh, these types on all of these functions, all of these objects that it provides and that kind of thing. It's a very nice way of us being able to uh, consume things, but also still get uh, high type coverage. Uh, I say type coverage because uh, flow is meant to be introduced incrementally into a project. Uh, since we're a new project, we've enforced 100% type coverage from the start.
2: Um, would, uh, are, you, are you saying that fl- flow, flow type with Rambda would support like collections and, and operations on the collections? It would, for it would
1: tell you that this takes an array of T, for example. Or like this particular function only wor- works on arrays of strings. So it would say that array has to be of a type string.
2: Okay, or something. That's, and that's what you mean by higher kind of types. Is that that's the that's the that's what opens up for you with flow type.
1: Uh, I don't believe that's higher kind of types, but that does allow us to um, be more specific about things and catch type errors much earlier.
0: And this is important because if you have annotations on all your own stuff, and then you go to use a utility function, if you don't know the type of that utility function, flow just kind of says, well question mark like it comes out and it's really any type like we don't know we can't make any assertions about it actually at this point
1: when you when you import uh, a library that flow doesn't know about that's a type error now Uh, you can produce a stub for it and then it will emit you know a declaration for that module that's of type any and then at that point yeah like flow just ignores anything that's of the any type
0: Sure, but I guess my point here is that without the type annotations for every bit of code that you're using all the way through, because like in Haskell or even C Sharp, it's, it's never an option to just like not put types on things. Right,
1: right. All the libraries that you use, the types came along for the ride,
0: right? Right, because otherwise they weren't, they're they not C Sharp or Haskell. Right. So this type library allows you to keep your type system consistent all the way through because now you can check end-to-end that everything you're doing actually has correct types. Correct. The, the types line up. So that's just a, a caveat for people who are doing a project like this. It You can start with this totally 100% type coverage approach, uh, assuming you can get all of your libraries have typings or you're willing to go add those typings for all your libraries. Yeah.
1: And I found adding third-party type definitions is really pretty simple to do. Um, some of them can get a little gnarly, but in the end, it's like you write them once, the cost is done, and now you can use you know, you can enjoy the type safety everywhere now.
0: All right. Do you want to take us into, or is there anything else on Flow?
1: Uh, I will say this about the the project. We don't have unit tests. We do have acceptance tests, which are like, uh, you know, we fire up like a browser and it like clicks through the application and stuff. We don't use any unit tests at the moment, mostly because we're a database skin. Um, and, and that being like, you know, we pull in data from RESTful APIs and we present it, and then you know we have a few things that go out and post to the RESTful APIs to make changes. But ultimately, we're not we're not doing like turn by turn navigation. There's not intense logic going on in our UI, so it's mostly just about making sure that we move the data from from A to B properly.
3: How would you say Flow compares to something like QuickCheck um, in Haskell? Which um, I don't know what QuickCheck is. QuickCheck just the checks for testing. types, I think. So it quickly checks the that the input and the output I think I think it's like a type checker. So it sounds it, in It concept- generates test cases. Oh, okay. It sounds in concept similar to Flow, but I guess it's a little bit different. It's it's not a during development um tool, but more of a after development testing tool, maybe?
1: I would say Flow's probably closer to an equivalent of like GHC that has no output on disk. You just get the uh, the return the exit code. Okay. Um, I mean, when we, when you run flow, it doesn't actually have like build output. It just goes and says whether or not the check succeeded. Uh, there's no artifact it emits, and when you transpile it, uh, flows only removed. So,
0: couple things real quick. So, um, quick check requires the types to generate the tests. Oh, so it's not okay. a. Te- Type system itself, but it uses the tests, it uses the types to generate useful um, inputs, and then you write an assertion, and then it can validate that over a thousand test cases, uh, it did the right thing every single time, and it tries to probe with like different kinds of input that might likely break, you know, like okay. your collection with zero elements and with a lot of elements and with you know different elements that are the min and the max of that type, you know, if it, if there's a concept of min and max, it, it does those sorts of things, so that's sort of like a, in the unit testing space. Okay. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And the second thing would be GHC does have output, it produces the compiled code. Well that's what I'm saying, like that's the difference. Flow doesn't have
1: compile outputs. It just has an exit code.
0: It just does the check. Like either it compiles or here's your errors. Or uh, right. sorry, it um it, it, type it type checks. checks or here's your errors. Yeah. yeah.
3: Yeah. Oh, it's like the REPL, so you could check the type um, of whatever you're looking at.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um yeah, uh, not having unit tests is a very, like, audacious thing to do at our at our shop. Um, I don't know. We just haven't had a need for it yet. There hasn't been anything complicated enough to necessitate us dropping in one. And then we'd have to decide how we wanted to get unit test coverage in and all that stuff. We just haven't crossed that
0: bridge. Do you feel the kinds of things you would traditionally write unit tests for, flow is taking the place of?
1: Almost, like, 95% of them, yeah. And that's why we've opted not to put in a unit test framework at this time, because at least in the JavaScript world, the vast majority of the tests that you're writing are like, did I get this thing in the shape I wanted? Did I get a null? Did I handle a null? That kind of thing. And we just don't have that issue. Flow catches all of those for us.
3: That's fantastic.
1: Yeah. Um, A notable thing is like the kinds of bugs that have popped up in our project have been Uh, older browser bugs, which all UI projects are haunted by. And um, I think we've had some misunderstandings and miscommunications with requirements. So that's not something that Flow can help us with, unfortunately, or any functional programming paradigm for that matter. (laughs) Um, But I I think those are natural. And as a result, um, this is a really big push that the organization is making. There's like 10 different teams that are working on different aspects of this colossal suite of apps that are all talking together. And ours is one of the ones that's staying above water through all of it. In fact, we started loaning out our work to other teams at this point to help them
0: catch up. So functional programming and immutability didn't slow you down. It made you faster.
1: It made us faster. And we definitely have taken the philosophy during this whole thing of like, you know, if I'm going to cut down trees... With an axe, I'm going to spend six hours sharpening it into actually cutting it or something like that. Uh, we've definitely been very, very big about, you know, if our tooling isn't up to the job, like go modify the tooling so it is, you know, make whatever improvements we need to do to, to get it up to stuff. Um, and that's been great for us. I mean, we, we, we type check our CSS for current out loud.
0: It's, it's, it's great. <laughs> do you want to talk about how that's, how that's done?
1: Yeah, we use, um, something called CSS modules, which is not really a detect checking, but it, it's basically a very simplified approach to doing CSS. So you treat every file as if it's a module. All the class names for selectors, you only use one. And the class names are, uh, at compile time, they get mangled into something that's essentially globalized. So I can have a button CSS, then I have like, you know, a normal class, a, a uh, press class. I have a you know a cancel class. Those kinds of things, uh, things that would name collide with everything, very easily because CSS stuff is all global. Uh, and instead of me having to figure out like specificity stuff, if you've ever had to like worry about that, it, CSS is a nightmare. That's why people hate it. We just took all the specificity stuff out and just said if you have an element, it gets one class and one class only, and that's the only way we style things.
0: Um, so how does that? type checking relate to that so we have a Webpack
1: plugin that will inspect the css as it's being transformed and pull the class names out Uh, when you import a css module this is absence of flow or anything like that when you import a css module in your javascript you're actually importing a css file you don't get the file you get like a manifest it's like the original class names that you chose that map to the mangled names that will be present at runtime um, and the the plugin, what it does is it basically builds a type for that manifest. So if we kick out a class, a whole you know styling section, it it will show up. If we're using that somewhere else in the code, we'll, we will get a failure in our type check.
0: So you're dynamically generating a new type, and this is uh, is this like a sum type? Like you're either A, B, or C. Like these are the valid. Uh, no, this here. would
1: be a product type. So it's basically, you just get back an object that just has a bunch of names on it, and they're all strings mm-hmm. or values. And then okay. you know, we feed that into the, you know, as we're building the DOM, we go and say, oh, you're this element, I'm going to give you this class.
0: But you're saying like module name dot class name. And because of your static type, you know that's a valid class name for that module, for that CSS module. That Correct. class was declared inside that module. And Correct. if you go and remove it from CSS it'll get regenerated. The type will then be missing that yep. field, and therefore mm-hmm. it'll fail. Yeah, So you can't reference yeah. a CSS class that's not there. Correct. Very cool. It's been really awesome. Uh, can we talk about the team for a bit?
1: Uh, so I don't want to make it sound like the tech stack's doing all the work. Uh, I have a team that's really awesome. Uh, they picked it up really, really fast, and which is surprising to me because they weren't uh javascript people they are all java they were all java engineers in their prior work they've been that way the whole time they've been at the organization as far as i know uh and they took to this like a fish to water it's uh
0: did they have uh did you feel like the static typing nature of flow made it easier for them to transition from java to javascript or was it weird because
1: flow is so different absolutely i think it helped yeah because you know when you when we talked about types with like somebody who does C sharp all day
2: like Aaron Aaron's like yeah of course the type checker caught that
1: what what do you mean
2: yeah it's hard for it's hard for me to imagine not having types actually I've been doing typed languages so long well. but but this is these are different types like how did they take to the idea of
0: like no we're not going to use null we're we're not going to pass that around or we have to check it every time
1: nobody wants to use null in in uh, Java if they can I think. I think that just by convention, it's just the only option you get because you don't got some types. You can't you can't say like this is a you know here's a complex success object or nothing, right? Your nothing is null, uh, and but the compiler doesn't help you find those out and correct those mm-hmm. for you, right? And that's, that's the that's the difference where where flow shines in my opinion is like yeah you have to opt into using null, and so the result is is that we actually spend most of our time with no nulls whatsoever. We'll we'll. If we have some kind of enum, we'll create an additional value that's basically like not set or something just to make sure we've always got something. And then we don't have to spend all... Of, every time we want to crack this thing open, we have to, you know, is it null? Okay, it's not, then I can use it. But if it is, then what are we going to do in this error case? We don't have to do that because there's always usually a step that we use to like, we're going to coerce this into a valid value all the time.
0: So it sounds like they, they took that idea of... um it's, it's in one of these three states and one of those states is like the not set state. Right. And that's just part of your, you know. okay.
1: Like we have like a gender. And so we've got like, you know, the organization only knows of male and female as a gender. And then we have like a not set as a third gender that we don't expect to come up very often, but if it does, I don't expect our application will break because of it.
3: Given that having a type checker gives you like an external place where everyone can agree on, on like the types, for instance, um, how, I was curious, how did your team split up the work in building up uh, this application? Was it easier to split up work, would you say, because um, of the stack that you use?
1: That one's harder to say. Um, I definitely, we have a, I, we have a lot of different archetypes in my team. Uh, you know, we have, we have the heavy lifter guy, the guy who likes to, um, you know, go away on some really hard problem and come back with some solution. We have one of those. Uh, he has prior experience with ML-based languages, I think Haskell specifically, uh, although not in a, in a professional sense. And so he's been able to take on some of like, the really hard flow problems that we've run into because there are, there are times where it's very difficult to express certain kinds of types or flow correctly tells you that you, there's an error, but you don't really understand the error message enough for it to understand what it wants you to do.
3: <laughs> that's javascript
1: um, yeah a- and so that's 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 there um we have different levels of experience you know we have junior engineers we have mid-level people um i think though like things are pretty formulaic in redux and so it makes it really easy if you're doing application logic to like there's not really a question on where this thing's going to wind up going you know uh, if you're going to do some, some handling code on some particular thing, you know what reducer you're going to put it in. You, you know, the state transitions. There's only so many different ways that you can skin it. So it's kind of like, it's almost hard to screw it up. Does that make sense? Because it's so structured. Right. And, and Redux can be very boilerplatey, uh, as a result. I don't know. I mean, but that's a trade-off of it. I, I am of the opinion that I'd rather have more code that works more reliably than less code that works mysteriously.
2: Would you say that, um, also related to teams and kind of how it's working, would you say that everyone working on the team kind of needs to know how all the different pieces work? Like you don't just get to specialize in one small part? Uh, Yeah. No, we don't have anybody who's actually
1: specializing. Everybody needs to be able to touch every part of the application, and we have done that. You know, uh, we were building everything in conjunction with um, the RESTful APIs. And so they haven't materialized up until just recently, just like a week or two ago. Uh, But for the first two months, we've been hitting like our own homegrown uh, mock API server, which again is enforced by crazy amounts of type coverage and everything. Mm. And, uh, you know, from that end all the way to you know, displaying things on the screen and getting CSS on there. Everybody's been able to touch every single
2: part of that. Yeah. And that kind of is related to what you said earlier about like having the sharp tools and part of, I mean, I don't want to take the analogy too far, but maybe part of having those sharp tools is people have to learn how to use them or they yeah. could yes. cut themselves. Yeah. <laughs> so you've got Java
1: engineers who've been very happy working on backend, you know, services and stuff. And now they have to learn how CSS works. Uh And I think, you know, one of the saving graces for something like the CSS is, like, we took the C out. There's no cascading in there anymore. Mm. the CSS modules provides that for us so that, you know, you're not wondering, like, why this thing got shifted over. And it's like, oh, because, you know, four elements up, it's, you know, there's this other class that's interfering with it somehow. That just doesn't happen in this code
2: base. So when you say your team is awesome, is part of it that they were kind of willing to do that? Because I don't imagine that you're always going to get people that that are that open.
1: I, this, uh, and this might be a personality thing for me, but I came in kind of very confident about the tech stack when we selected it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, they didn't know anything about the ecosystem really. So they were just kind of like, you know, shrugging and you're like, okay, I guess
2: let's try whatever, whatever you say, boss.
1: They they didn't really have a space to argue yes or no about it.
2: Yeah. They're just learning how it works. They don't have time to make suggestions or, or or say that things should be done differently because they're figuring it out.
1: They have no idea what there is to be different.
2: So, and by yeah. the time they figure it out, they've also like, ah, oh, you know what? This isn't so bad.
1: I'd like to think so. Yeah, <laughs>
2: <laughs> right.
3: If you were to advise someone uh, who might not know very much about the JavaScript ecosystem, like how would you advise them to shop around um, in picking? components uh for their stack.
1: I mean the crazy thing about the Java ecosystem is that there's a smorgasbord of choices out there. Yes. And you know, and and just because I picked my particular set of choices doesn't mean it's the perfectly right one. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's the perfectly right one for your team. I'd like to think this is a fairly good one that can apply generally for a lot of applications.
3: Well I guess here's here's yes. a follow-up question. Was there anything that you initially chose and you decided you don't want to keep with that and you removed it from your stack or vice yes. versa you started and then you decided, oh we're missing this one piece and let's find something to fill that gap?
1: Definitely. So we got a um, we were looking very initially at a pre-made table that we needed because we we show a lot of tabular data in this particular application. And the table itself, um, somebody's made one in React. It uses uh, Bootstrap CSS, which is you know a lot of pre-built CSS stuff that you can apply. And uh, I took a very quick look at it and decided this was no good for us. And part of the reason, the, the biggest reason is uh, we have... Uh, it does things like it tries to sort your data for you. It tries to handle that sort logic. It tries to uh, handle the display of all of the cells. And we stepped away from that. And instead of saying that we're going to go with like a solution that has like all the bells and whistles attached, we went for something that allowed us to specialize it. So we made very, very lightweight, like I have a table column. And what does it take? Oh, you can put like a table, you know, cells inside of it. And that's all it can do it, it it's 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 hard to screw it up when you do it like that the, the The surface area for error is very small.
0: so would you say that you went from like one component that's trying to be very very smart to a bunch of components that are all relatively simple, kind of dumb quote unquote dumb components yes, and then it becomes smart again because you have composed them together, right because they're also simple, they're easy to compose.
1: Right, and I think that's been my litmus test for any tech choice that we've made is that it has to basically pass that test As if it's trying to do too much for us, eventually we're going to wind up fighting it.
3: It sounds very minimal. Um, like if you're traveling for a long-term backpacking trip, you want to choose the things that you're going to use, uh, whatever is most useful to you because you want to keep it lightweight um, as much as possible, have less things to um, keep track of.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and a fun, fun part about the use case for this particular, uh, component that we were looking at, uh, we have a sibling team that, uh, we share components with, or at least we've been trying to, uh, and for one reason or another, they had trouble integrating our table components, so they, uh, they ran off and they reached for the very one that we just stepped away from, and they had a lot of trouble getting it to work because the moment that, you know, they wanted to do things that it didn't support, they were fighting it. They had to get into its internals and try and figure out like how it worked and, you know, whether or not they wanted to maintain a fork of it or not, or all things that they had to entertain as part of the, the process there.
0: And, and this might be where the analogy of like a, uh, a pre-made action figure, you know, with like karate trap motion and everything comes in versus like yeah. something made out of, uh, you know, connects or Legos or something. Uh, one is like, it's really nice to grab the action figure. It's ready to go. It does cool things. It's just like, bam, use it. But if you want to get that action figure to be something else structurally, you're going to have a pretty hard time. Right. Like maybe you can pull the arms off and put them in the leg socket and the legs off, and put them in the arm socket if those are compatible, but you're certainly not going to like turn it into a car where you could conceivably do that if you have just a bunch of pieces that are composed together.
3: Yes. Right. Legos is a really great example, because you, you need to know how to connect the blocks.
2: Or in the C-sharp world, I think anyone that's used in Hibernate, which I actually haven't used extensively, but I've heard horror stories of, of that particular library, and it's just... A... It,
1: it's great until it's not, is the general rule with those kinds of tools. And I've used
2: in Hibernate, I've used
1: Hibernate, yeah. They are great until they aren't, and then suddenly they're your nightmare, and... You know, and I don't mean the bag on but I mean, there's a lot of people who put hard work into those libraries and stuff. But if you aren't a main, at maintainer level of knowledge, you can be very lost if you don't know what to do to fix it or to make it to appease
0: it to work within your ecosystem, you know? Or you're just fighting against its design. Right. Okay. Um, so you told us about your team. Oh, one question about your team. Uh, was there anything that went badly with the team? Where where either these choices that you made or something about them didn't work as well as it might have been if it was just vanilla JavaScript or something like that. Or or non functional.
1: There have been some things I've done to hold up the team because I'm like, wait a minute, I can erect my perfect ivory tower. Uh you know, give me a week while you sit on your hands and I produce a working kind of like full stack Redux react example
0: for you. Uh
1: that definitely slowed us down initially. I could
0: have done better on that. So does that speak to lack of training materials for this style of programming using these tools? Because you couldn't just point them at a tutorial and say, look at that.
1: There's definitely, JavaScript is a rapidly moving ecosystem. So you know you can find a Stack Overflow post that's six months old and it's out of date. You know, it's talking about a solution that has been deprecated already. So yeah, I guess training materials aren't like eh, and there's not a lot in terms of like like I've laid out for all of you the the ecosystem that I've used and I there's probably not a ton of examples of, out there of just like and here's how you do what Logan just did with all of it together. Right? Like here's all of the things that he did glued all together, right? Uh, usually each tool provides its own, you know, it provides no context other than its own. Right. Here's Redux being used with nothing else. And I think Redux actually does have some Reacts. Redux, React documentation, but you know, that will only get you so far. Eventually you have to go make a REST request to something for your application to be useful most of the time. And it's like, there's no documentation in there for that.
2: Right? Um, so are you saying your mistake was holding your team up while you're trying to think of an example? Like what would you have done differently? Your your mistake was that you had, had your team wait while you tried to kind of set up training material for them, what should you have done? Should you have set it up ahead of time, or should you have had them work through things while you were working on it?
1: Uh, maybe if I could have at least had some of them pair with me, probably would have been a, a good choice there. Uh, the training material wasn't there, and I basically had to hit the ground running, so there was no doing it beforehand. It was all just doing it right then and there.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. This might speak more to like the fact that because you're creating so much custom customize things um that's very specific and particular to your use case that it's there's this oral tradition of if you're not showing somebody how you did it there's no document and so it's like you know the aboriginal tribes from like way way back generations ago who don't document things if they don't pass it down through generations then all that knowledge is lost
1: and, you know, we've been pretty good about, in our pull requests, if, like, if I see something that's funky and I don't immediately grok what it's trying to do, it's like, okay, I want comments here. I want you to tell me what you're expecting to receive and what you're expecting to output in terms of, like, runtime data and, you know, or, or why did you do this weird thing? Um, but those don't necessarily tell you, like, how to jump into a Redux app. And, yeah, we... I and I myself have not done a great job documenting that. Like, how would you? How would I build a contributing guide to this application right now? That'd be a bit of work, and we haven't done any of it. It's mostly just like, here's how you produce a build.
3: Well, I think with the build information and the type catalog or the index of all the catalog types, that that's a lot of information already. And I think someone experienced enough might be able to take that and play with the puzzle and figure out how to get some pieces stitched together if if not maybe the most optimal at least it's all connected
2: i have, I have to do that all the time logan it's, that's basically my job so i come into people that have done exactly what you did like oh this is perfect i'll write down the documentation someday and someday never never comes yeah i
3: mean Someday's i'm trying to get tomorrow
2: better, but it's a it's a practice for sure no, I, I mean, the the those projects that I've, that I've worked on, they were successes, and that sounds like yours might be too. It's just, but you're right, like, certainly in an ideal world, you you do get that done, and it sounds like you're maybe getting to that point where you're steady enough, that that is something to consider.
1: I, I like to think anytime somebody asks me a question about something in the application, where should I put this, how should I do this, that's a potential opportunity to enhance the documentation.
0: Have you had anyone new join the project since you started? We have.
1: Um... I managed to convince management to give us uh, an engineer that was about to become free, uh, because we have tooling that's well poised to help out the other teams. And, uh, so his job has been to, um, learn how to do, how to put together our mock APIs. And those ones are also type checked in a way that is very kind of extreme. Uh, the, the, the people who put together the APIs themselves, uh, we use uh, some product called Stoplight where they record the structure. Here's what the APIs are. Here's what the models are that it uses. These kinds of things. Here's what the types will look like, how we validate them. And we can produce a swagger definition from that as an export. And we have a tool that takes a swagger file and will produce flow types from that. So, um, and then due to flow having some very, very fancy meta types, we're able to convert uh, you know, just some random object coming in and run it through a validator that produces a type that's compatible with what they say the model is. Gotcha. So we're able to have a mock API basically reflect exactly what it is they say that they're going to be. And that's been very, very powerful for us. And we're loading that out. And I'm having him start on that because that's not as aggressive. He just has to learn Express and Flow. It's not as aggressive as like, okay, here's React and Redux and Flow and Ramda and you know Webpack. Uh, he doesn't have to wrap his head around all of that just yet.
0: So the new person on, who came on, you didn't get to experience if having the flow types for documentation eased their onboarding process, like it served as a form of documentation that made the whole project easier to understand.
1: Yeah, um, I had worked with him on a prior team. Uh, we move around teams a lot, I guess, in this organization, but... Uh, and that and that uh, project was an Angular one, so he he, he might be um a little, a little tainted. We got we got to unlearn some of those things first, and then okay, yeah, it's it's a different JavaScript for him. That's for sure. Uh, it's really great to get one of them over when they you know are first learning like the Redux stuff and you know, how am I supposed to put this together? And it's like, okay, let me, you know, show you a few things and you you can start to see like the wheels turn as like this gigantic paradigm shift is happening in their head of stepping away from this like, you know, giant imperative style that they've been used to forever to like, I don't know, you just just add a function. Now it doesn't have to know everything anymore. Now the, the function that you pass it can know those things.
0: So, and you're attributing being able to stay ahead I know you spoke to this a little bit earlier, directly to the use of functional paradigm and tools that support that, like RAM Right, right.
1: Okay. And I think, Dave, you've said this yourself. It's like, I'm just I'm not smart enough to juggle all of these things in my head. And the functional world provides things in little bite-sized pieces so that you don't have to juggle all of them in your head. It's very easy to make little tiny bite-sized things and then compose them together into something that's you know, your complex application.
0: Right, the, and the composition, the ability to compose there being the key to making right. that work. Right. Um, you, you said the other teams were sort of looking at what you're doing and are interested in this. Do, do you feel like this uh, serves as a way to introduce functional to the entire company by saying, like, we are successful? Not like we're convincing you to do the right thing, but like you can see us out there doing amazing things and you kind of go, well, how are you doing that? And, and you can turn around and say, well, we, we do it differently. We're building it in this different way. And that's our advantage. Definitely,
1: definitely. Uh, we even did a tech demo a little while back, and we had to cut it off because so many people were asking us questions about how Flow worked into our stuff and how how is it that we're getting away with using stateless components everywhere as opposed to using the big React components.
0: And... Was that kind of like a we-didn't-realize-it-could-be-done-this-way kind of a conversation?
1: I think so, and also, you know, it's getting buy-in to be able to start some of these things is can be difficult, especially if you're already in an established project. Like if you're not on Redux, it's hard to get onto Redux in your existing app. Uh, when you're starting from scratch, it's like, well, I can just go and pick and choose from the best of breed if I want to and put them all together. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping also like there's more exposure because, you know, we're an organization, a big organization, like the 10 teams that we have aren't all the teams. Uh, <laughs> so we're, putting together like a shared component repository. And because I'm lazy and I don't like doing extra work, I'm making sure that repository supports flow. So I don't have to strip them out in order to push them to this repository. So it now has flow type checking in there. And so that's going to expose it to the rest of the, you know, the firm. Uh, And maybe there's better ways to go about that. But uh, at this point, it's like I'm the only one who's pushing to get these
0: shared components up in the first place. So, So you inevitably like help shape it.
1: Right,
2: right. I'm the first one there, so I get to make a few choices, I guess, right. Are you at all concerned that they're gonna think that the reason for the success isn't uh, the functional stuff, but it might actually be you? Like maybe you know Logan's uh, Logan's pretty pretty useful leader here.
1: I mean, recent weeks, I've had to step back from actually doing the development so much because of I've taken such a leadership role there that it, at this point the team's carrying it more than, far more than me. Uh, there's parts of the code base I don't recognize anymore. Because they've changed it so much, this is a very Mm. weird thing for me. Usually, I'm the guy that I spoke about earlier, who goes after the really hard problems and disappears into those. Mm -hmm. So I usually know the system very well in and out. But um, at this point, the team's kind of just taking it and run, and I'm mostly like running interference for them or trying to make sure that like you know when we come to a fork in the road that we have a decision and stuff. But. That's more about interpersonal stuff than functional programming.
2: <laughs> yeah, that was a little tongue-in-cheek there. It was just funny to hear Dave say, "Like, well, obviously this is all because you chose functional libraries and it has nothing to do with you. <laughs> I just wanted to point out for a moment that maybe you did something right too, Logan.
1: Maybe, maybe. But again, like the team is doing awesome. I love it.
0: All right, uh, I think we're going to move on now to our feedback section. We have one bit of feedback. Uh, it's from... Uh, a name that was written in in Hebrew, so and none of us speak Hebrew, so we weren't able to. Uh, we hope we're hopefully pronouncing this right. Uh, we ran through Google Translate, and it says that the name is Don. So hopefully that's the name. And their comment was that C sharp link operations that that we have mentioned in the past uh, that select on, uh, let's say like a a list in C sharp is a functor type operation, right? Um, that's the equivalent of map. And and their comment was that well, in reality. Link is converting our list into an I enumerable and we get an I enumerable out the end that we have to, to list to get it back to a list. So we are actually changing the types there under the hood. So yes, technically that is not a functor in the sense of it wouldn't pass uh, it wouldn't pass Haskell's type signature as an example.
2: You're kinda I'm sorry to interrupt, but you're kinda getting an we always talk about how it's an F of A to an F of B for, for map and select. And you're kinda getting an F of A to a G of B. B. Yes, exactly. And then we have a way to go from G back to F
0: with our dot to list that we put on the end.
2: Okay, sorry, carry on.
0: Yeah, yeah. So no, that's a good point. So it's not technically a functor, but like the conceptual idea of apply this function to every element in this collection is absolutely a functor type operation on a list. So we're again, we're not giving, this isn't like the absolute most rigorous like rundown that we're giving here. Uh, so that's a good, good thing to point out. But like in spirit, select is a functor. In that it's going to obey the functor laws and it's going to do the the right kind of thing. So, um, again, if you are taking what we have as the final truth on this, I always suggest that you use us as a starting point for exploration and go look into this more. All right, with that, we have uh, reached the end of our episode. Any parting thoughts? I have no pun this time.
1: Oh no, I'm I'm
0: sorry. I
1: apologize. Oh, I-
3: Saw something about on Twitter about JavaScript. Sometimes when I'm writing JavaScript, I want to throw up my hands and say, this is bullshit, but I can never remember what this refers to.
0: <laughs> <laughs> nice. Except if we were using flow, then it would just tell us. The yeah. type, yeah. at least. Yeah, we do at least know what we're dealing with. All right. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. And uh, we will talk to you next episode. Bye. Thanks. Bye.